Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. And we are now also the creators of 100 episodes of Experimental Brewing. You know what? You forgot a book, too. There's also Homebrew All-Stars in there. That's true. Homebrew All-Stars. How could I forget? It's because we write so many books, man. You just can't remember them all. Exactly. Now, between the two of us, not only do we have all that behind us, but we also have over 40 years of home reading experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. Well, on today's episode, it can't be an episode 100 without us doing something a little special, so we're going to get up to a lot of shenanigans. We're going to go to the pub and cover a bunch of beer news. We're going to go to the library, talk a couple of new interesting things that have uh, popped up on our radar recently. And then in the brewery, we're going to talk... Well, we're going to talk episode 100, because then we're going to go to the lounge and we're going to talk to one of our favorite maltsters in the world. We're going to talk to Gil Seth Klon of MechaGrade and find out exactly what he's up to and what new malt might be coming your way soon. Really, man, he has a lot going on, doesn't he? Yes, he does. But before we do all of that, we're going to take a quick break here and listen to a message from the people who make this show possible. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Well, thank you for sticking around and listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, as always, if you interact with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so that they know that they're spending their money slightly less foolishly than some other people are. Now, (laughs) Certainly than I am. Exactly. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to your feed, last week's episode of The Brew Files was episode 69, where I sat down with members of the Rhode Island Brewing Society, a.k.a. RIBS, and talked about making an award-winning Doppelbach and exactly how you go and scale... Down to a session strength, 8% Doppelbach. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but that was one of the beers that we had at the Guild during our party at HomebrewCon. It was awesome. 
the time was awesome. The ribs folks are awesome. So go listen to that episode and take some lessons away. And when we talk to Seth here in a few minutes, you're going to hear him talking about an event that he's got going on on September 28th that he calls Brewing Man. But it seems to be the season for beer events, and there's a couple other ones happening. The next one coming up that I'm really excited about is Hoppin' Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops in Yakima, Washington, of all places. It runs from August 30th to September 2nd. There are parties, there are beers to try, there are talks about hops, there are tours of hop farms and processing plants. You'll be able to talk to the hop growers themselves. It is just going to be one hoppy time for four days. It's not too late to get there. If you want to do it, you can go to yakimachief.com slash events and sign up. It's going to be a killer time. And after that, coming up in November... We have NanoCon put on by our friends at Brew Your Own Magazine. It's going to be November 1st and 2nd in downtown Vancouver, Washington, just over the Columbia from Portland. You can use the code NANO-EXPERIMENTAL, that is NANO-EXPERIMENTAL, and save $100 on registration. And if you register before the early bird pricing ends, which is September 16th, you can get another $100 off for a total of 200 bucks off on your registration. That's more than enough to pay for your hotel for a night or two. You can get access to 30 seminars and experts to help you figure out how to launch or refine your small brewery. Go to byobootcamp.com and choose NanoCon. And remember, use the code word nano-experimental to save an extra 100 bucks. That's right. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA Brewswag.com code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Chat with Champs, and I'm really, really jazzed about this one. Chat with Champs helps kids going through cancer treatments by connecting kids with champions so that they don't feel so alone. They do things like, oh, give the kids walkie-talkies so they can talk to people. They bring people into the hospital to see them. Uh, the outreach programs help kids during and after their treatment so that they never feel like they're alone. Uh, we really hope that you guys will get on board with this. Go to the website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and throw us a few bucks that we can pass along to chat with champs. Great cause, great people. That's right. Kids, cancer, they need your money. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. I think that's enough business. I think it's time for us to get down to drinking. I guess so. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of essential brewing books like How to Brew by John Palmer, Designing Great Beers by Ray Daniels, and their newest title, Simple Homebrewing by expert homebrewers Denny Gunn and Drew Beecham. Visit BrewersPublications.com to shop these titles and more. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever that happens to be. We're having a couple beers, and uh, Drew has something there with lime and salt, huh? Yeah, they're going a little festive. Now, it's not been that uncommon to see beers that have been popping up recently with lime and salt kind of going on a margarita-type angle. But a lot of times those are like gozas, right? So they got a, like that kettle sour uh, character to them and whatnot. But my friends down at Trademark Brewing Company, who you'll be hearing from shortly on this podcast, they had a brand new beer when I was down there helping them brew called uh, La Playa Mexican Lager. And they actually took a Mexican lager and added lime juice and zest and salt to it in actually just about the right proportions to make it just kind of super zingy and refreshing and not overly salty like so many of the gozes that I've had are like, you know, salt right, mixed. Right. Yeah. And this, this one, they serve it with a little lime wheel on it. And, boy, doesn't it just feel like a vacation in a glass. Man, that sounds like totally refreshing. Yeah, and particularly when I was brewing down there, it was uh, damn near 100 degrees. Oh, <laughs> boy. Well, I'm going pretty much the other direction from that. I am having a Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest, and I've had a bunch of people tell me that this year's collaboration with Bitburger produced one of the most outstanding uh, collaboration O-Fests that has come out, and uh, I have to admit, of all the ones that they've made the last few years, this is definitely my favorite. It's got that nice malt character uh, that you expect from an O-Fest, but it, it's really, really drinkable, uh, digestible, as the Belgians say. The body is not too heavy. It's not too sweet. It has a nice dry finish. Uh, I guess that maybe some people would say that it's not malty and sweet enough for an Oktoberfest. But, you know, to me, this is just about perfect. And it's got just a touch of character from the yeast, which uh, I guess is the Bitburger yeast. So... Uh, this should be available pretty much every place by now. So if you haven't tried the Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest collaboration beer this year, go get some. I think you're going to like it. Well, and if I remember correctly, they got special hops from Bitburger that only Bitburger gets. Oh, and really? Then, I was not aware of that. Yeah, and then the yeast strain, you're right, it is from Bitburger, but apparently it's a, a house strain that that is special to the house. 
So a couple of different things there going on. Now, is it more like the the Meritson Ambery type Oktoberfest, or is it no, more no, like no, a no, fest beer? No, it's it's a, it's a full out. It's not a fest beer. It's a, a full out Oktoberfest. Um, and, yeah, and the yeast. I mean, there is just like the barest hint of sulfur in it, and it's just fantastic. So it's still in that more amberish category. Oh, definitely so. Definitely so. It's it's not the uh, the light colored fest beer at all. Yeah, well, there you which, go. Which I like, too, but, I mean, this one is great. I, I have to admit that uh, I kind of, as much as I like Oktoberfest, I shy away from them sometimes because I'm just afraid they're going to be too thick and sweet. And this one is, like I said, highly drinkable, almost too drinkable. I, I tend to avoid the German ones just because they're almost always oxidized. Yeah, so. right. Yep, yep. And this one definitely was great. Well, and speaking of things that uh, have maybe gone a little bit past their prime or past their age. <laughs> yeah, man. So the whole thing with ABI buying craft breweries is not anything new, right? This has been going on for a good long while. And the very first instance of that was ABI's investment in a company called the Craft Brewers Alliance, or CBA. And CBA is responsible for a number of big brands that you know. So uh, let's see. The big one's uh, Widmere, but actually the big one in sales is Kona. And ABI has been a minority owner of uh, CBA for a good long while. And because of the way the deal was structured, uh, they had the option to go and buy up the rest of CBA, which you would kind of expect them to do, right? They've already bought like a whole bunch of breweries. Right. And they own a third of CBA already. Right. So they had the option, I think, it, uh, I forget the exact number on it, but it was, a, it was a big number. It had a B attached to it. And they were had the option to go and buy up the other two-thirds of CBA. And thanks to both the price of CBA stock dropping and thanks to a couple of other things going on, like ABI's debt ratio. You know, remember, they just spun off their Australian businesses. They're trying to do an IPO for their Asian breweries. Right. Uh, they, uh, they declined. And instead of paying the you know, <clears throat> billion dollars, they actually uh, opted to pay the $20 million penalty to CBA to release CBA back into the world. You know, and my understanding is that they are still keeping their 30% ownership, and there are two ABI guys on the board, too, of CBA. Yeah, and supposedly the deal still allows CBA access to ABI's distribution channels and all that sort of good stuff. It's basically that they just had to decide, okay, are we going to buy the rest of you, or are we just going to stand pat with what we have? And they decided to stand pat with what they have and take a $20 million hit. So that's kind of interesting to me because, yeah, uh, Kona and Widmer and all these guys, I mean, uh, Widmer, unfortunately, for being craft beer pioneers, has been kind of suffering in a lot of the ways that the older craft breweries have been. So it'll be interesting to see what happens now. Yeah, it certainly will, man. And speaking of interesting to see what happens... It's looking like maybe the uh, world of all-in-one brewing devices has gotten a little bit smaller. Uh, there's a company called Brewery that's been around for a few years. They have been pushing out systems, and there have been uh, rumors of them having some, some issues. Uh, a lot of people have been having trouble with the equipment. Uh, I know one guy who has uh, spent more time repairing his than actually using it, and it's looking like maybe they've gone silent, huh? Yeah, the uh, at least when I went to check. So this was all prompted because I was trolling around the internets like one does, and I saw people complaining about their breweries being broken, and then noting that the website was no longer available. So you could still get the the brewing links, you know, or the brewery links from say Google, 
But if you try and go to brewery.com, no response. So it's interesting. The systems are still on sale over at... Um, oh, wait, no, actually, uh, sorry, I just decided to go double-check. Brewery.com is now available from GoDaddy. Yeah, I just I just saw that, and I've been I've been hearing this uh, on their Facebook group for a couple weeks now. People are saying that they'd always had trouble getting a response from the company, and now there was even less. And people were reporting that the uh, website wasn't there anymore. Uh, so I don't know if uh, anybody out there knows definitively. Please let us know because, as far as we can tell, Brewery isn't there anymore. Yeah, and Brewery.org is also registered to them, but it's also not answering. So. There yeah, you go. Right. So, no, so no more brewery. We, yep, we do talk about the brewery and simple home brewing, but uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't send you out to buy one right away at this point. Nope. Now, from things going awry with stock purchases not being made to things going out of stock, let's talk about something good with stock. Yeah, no kidding, man. A a good brewery buyout, uh, Breakside Brewing in Portland, one of my absolute favorite breweries. Uh, their, their IPA is just so good, so good, so good. The, the owner uh, had decided that maybe it was time to sell the brewery and uh, get some money back on the investment of time and money he'd made over the years. But he was really, really certain that he did not want to sell out to ABI or somebody like that. So he gave the employees a chance to buy stock and take on the brewery. And, man, that is just cool beyond belief. Yeah, I always like the idea of an ESOP. So that's it's a little bit complicated. There, I mean, obviously, there's still a very large ownership stake you know, in the founders. But now they've spun off, I think it was 30% of their stock to the employees to be able to actually go and uh, go and buy into the pool. And even the other thing I also thought was great was their brewmaster also has a 5% share in the company. So always reward your brewmasters. Yeah, no kidding, man. So th- that's really great to see. I really like this. We've seen this done in a couple of different places. Uh, Full Sail did this a long time ago. Uh, New Belgium, I, th- I believe, is ESOP. And there are a couple of others as well. So really great to see companies doing that, particularly in a in a world that we like to think is as communal as craft beer is. Really, man. And I just want to give major kudos to Scott Lawrence, who decided that uh, this was the right way to do it. And you've just made me even more of a fan of Breakside than I was already. It helps them make really good beer. Well, certainly doesn't hurt for sure. And uh, really, really good beer and uh, having a really good attitude about it is what makes me a fan. Yep. All right. And then uh, we go to, well, I think, Denny, I'm going to let you handle this one. This is this is a, a you article. Purpose Brewing Company is where Peter Buchhart went when he left New Belgium. He was kind of the wizard behind the early days of New Belgium Brewing. He decided it was time to start up his own um, organization. So he started Purpose Brewing, uh, and he is making beers that are unique and wonderful and not weird with being unique. Uh, and I just I gotta say right now uh, he was the keynote speaker at uh, the homebrew conference in Denver a number of years ago, and this guy really revitalized my brewing by giving me new ways to think outside the box without getting too far outside the box, and that's what I love about his beers. Yeah, well, 
mean, let's face it, Peter is a classically trained brewer, you know, most famously with Rodenbach, and then over to New, New Belgium for a good long while. And, yeah, if there's anybody who's going to be, I think, able to stand astride the line of, you know, traditionalist versus experimentationalist, it's definitely somebody like Peter. Yeah. One thing that he said during his keynote speech that really, really has stuck with me, um, he was talking about how he comes up with ideas for beers and stuff. Uh, and he said, you know, when I'm designing a beer, I think in terms of, uh, I, I want a beer that reminds me of that staircase over there, or I, I want a beer that reminds me of that color blue, or I want a beer that fills this glass perfectly. And, you know, those are, those are kind of like out there concepts, but to me, they're an exactly perfect way to think about creativity. Yeah, uh, great. And I mean, that's very much kind of like, you know, imagery or narrative based uh, recipe design, right? Yeah. Uh, some, sometimes, like, I mean, I know you, you always talk about trying to start with what the flavor is that you want. Right. And yeah, uh, Peter's definitely starting with the images, which is very much like what I do when I go, what's the story I want to tell? Yeah, and, you know, there's a there's a, a couple sentences here in this article that really really show that uh, one of the beers they make I believe is called Small Trekker I probably butchered that too but uh, it says here if you go on a tour of purpose you might end up helping Peter pick out which Small Trekker is tap room ready for the next week and the description of the beer will be whatever words you used to describe the beer when you first tried it Peter said one person only used colors to describe the flavor of Small Trekker. He said it tasted purple, so I jotted that down and used it. It's like, yes, man, this is this is the kind of creativity I want. Uh, the rest of you guys can have the uh, the the pastry IPAs with glitter in them and stuff like that. I want a beer that tastes purple from Peter. Well, now you've just encouraged somebody to go put purple yams in a beer. No, 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 no. The beer is not purple. It tastes purple. <laughs> I want to make that clear to all you people out there. Do not take this literally. Use it to uh, to inspire your mind. That's okay. I just saw a beer that uses uh, purple yams and purple carrots in it. So there you go. Well, yeah, I'm I'm sure that they're out there. And then finally, let's uh, let's close up with well a, a fest that started last year and we only caught it like after after it actually happened, but it reoccurred again, and um, it's a festival called Fresh Fest. So Fresh Fest was back on August 9th, and so I know we're covering a little bit late, but it was in uh, Pittsburgh. And what's really cool about Fresh Fest is that it's everything centered around the idea of bringing black-owned breweries and black beer drinkers together to celebrate the confluence of the two. So earlier this year here in L.A., we had a big effort from uh, a pair of people that were running a clothing company slash beer blog slash beer lifestyle uh, channel called Dope and Dank. And they worked with the BrewDog guys to now start to open up a brewery called uh, Hops and Crown. And it's interesting to see that, again, we're starting to see this celebration of you know more voices, different voices in the brewing world. And to me, that's great because you're going to be able to see more stories being told, right? Again, remember, I'm a beer and store guy. I like the story of a beer. You know, I like the story of beer almost as, as much as I like drinking the beer. So the idea that now there are going to be new voices or different voices involved in telling the stories that come to make up a beer, this makes me super excited. Yeah, man, I, I think that uh, this is a really, really cool idea, and uh, who knows, maybe one of these days we'll actually make it. Yeah, and I mean, I think they had uh, like 80 different breweries 
at wow, the. Uh, that's great. So, uh, uh, and so, I mean, it's actually really kind of cool to to see. Yeah, and hopefully this keeps just growing, and hopefully we're going to be able to see more of this stuff. I mean, like, obviously here in L.A., I've talked with a couple of different uh, Latino brewers about things that are happening, and we're starting to see a rise of more professional Latino uh, breweries as well, you know, with that same sort of focus. In fact, uh, pretty soon we'll have uh, somebody who's been on the podcast before who now actually has a professional brewery talking about what it takes to launch a Latino-focused brewery, even in a city like L.A. I love it. I love new stories being told. I love I love new experiences and I love being able to learn uh, new things, very much via a sort of a common shared thing, right? There's a reason why, like Anthony Bourdain always talked about, if you want to know a culture, you go eat with them. You know, in this case, if you want to know a culture even better, you go drink with them. Yep, that's right, man. So, good times. Hopefully, we'll see a fresh fresh three, and we'll be able to keep going. Yeah, no kidding. And now to the library. To the library, indeed. We're gonna go. To- Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be quiet. We're going to go talk some technical stuff about uh, Brett over in the library, so stick around. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Never mind that. We're over here in the library, and uh, we're going to be looking at an article put out by Escarpment Labs, a uh, Canadian uh, yeast developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you may remember we had uh, Chris from Escarpment on at the HomebrewCon with his uh, dealkalized beers. Right. And uh, they've just put out a paper uh, about Brett and temperature and uh, also, there's some really good tips for using Brett in a primary as opposed to secondary. Yeah, so like the big question that people always have, I mean, there's, well, <laughs> not the big question, but a lot of questions is. Yeah, really. Yeah. What sort of temperature should you uh, pitch Brett at? Should you co-pitch Brett? Should Brett act differently in the primary as a standalone yeast 
than it does if you pitch into the secondary after fermentation's already happened. Uh, what happens temperature-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of different things going on here. And one of the things that the guys at Escarpment did was that they took a look both at uh, temperature and also uh, a little bit of the secondary-primary question. And so one, of course, no big surprise that they found a different performance variance uh, between different strains. Anybody surprised by that? Go ask yourself why. You know, these things are different little critters. And they did a lot of the experimentation down at 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, since they are Canadian, they use a sensible temperature system. And so what they observed was that as the breads were fermented at higher temperatures, they were mostly more fruity, but not all of them were. And that the phenols were actually fairly consistent. So no matter the temperature or the strain, you know, small differences, but fairly consistent, which actually was kind of surprising to me. I would have expected that to, to change. And so what they did say was that from their from their little study, what they suspect is that a colder or even doing a bright fermentation under pressure will in secondary would yield a funkier flavor because the phenols are still there, but, you know, be, and it's only funkier because you're suppressing the esters, those big fruity flavors. Right. So if you did your bright colder and in secondary, you'd get more of your earthy, uh, spicy tones. Right. I think I, I think that was uh, particularly interesting. And then, of course, they closed up the article with some practical tips. Yeah, and just uh, in a nutshell, uh, because we'll have a link to this article on our website so you can read the whole thing, there are four tips for using Brett in primary as opposed to secondary. Number one, Brett primaries tend to have a long lag phase. Number two, pitch it fresh. Number three, oxygen is central to controlling Brett growth and fermentation. Number four, consider blending in a pinch of Saccharomyces. And number five, even though I only said there were four, number five is some strains work better than others. So if you're, if you're a Brett fan and you like using it and you're looking for a little guidance on uh, where to go with it, check out this article. Like I said, we'll have a link to it on our website. All right, and then on to the news about hops, because you guys know that we've been talking about how the IBU is a lie for a little while. There was a really cool uh, research poster that got uh, posted actually to the Milk the Funk group. And, you know, looking at it, it comes out of uh, the University of Missouri Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. And it's titled, Comparison of Hop-Derived Humulone Constituents in Beer Using UV-Viz, HPLC, and LCMS. It's a bunch of terms that I don't necessarily <laughs> completely know. Um but what they were really doing was they were taking a look at like a lot of the stuff that we talked about, which is, you know, okay, what the heck is an IBU and how does that actually translate to what we taste or what we perceive? And the standard test, the HPLC test that is used along a lot of the, the industry, it turns out it's not very accurate for telling us what's really going to be about bittering. Um, and they did a couple of comparisons with, you know, a famous St. Louis lager. I'll let you guys guess that one. Yeah, right. Um, and, and an Imperial IPA and took a look at like, okay, what would traditionally get measured versus what's actually contributing to the overall bitterness. And a large part of what you're really seeing is that this whole methodology of testing and determining these IBUs that we have known and love is only really sufficient for more lightly hop styles and is really, again, no surprise, developed around the whole idea of the American lager or the light lager industry. 
And yeah, it, it certainly doesn't have the validity uh, when you go into like all the uh, the late hopped and heavily dry hopped beers right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, they say with the advent of late hopping and dry hop routines, modern craft beers often contain significant amounts of AA and oxidized derivatives, which also absorb in the UV region. So one thing that uh, I discovered years ago when I was doing my uh, my IBU experiment, my first word hopping experiment, was that uh, one component of the IBU measurement is humulinones, which are oxidized alpha acids, which contribute to the uh, measurement of IBUs, but not to bitterness. So... You know, right there is an explanation of why a lot of times in these heavily uh, late hop beers, you will get measurable IBUs, but it won't really taste like it's a bitter beer. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a little little interesting, but once again, it's showing that our modern brewing practices and really the modern diversity of brewing practices has outstripped the sort of older techniques that we have for numerically describing this stuff. Which, again, goes to the point that sometimes the best determiner of quality or bitterness or whatever is not so much a hard number as it is the thing your tongue is telling you. That's right. Whatever it tastes like to you is what it is, uh, you know, and basically it comes down to when is an IBU not an IBU? And the answer is almost always. There you go. All right, and I think that's enough library time. I agree, man. So uh, please stick around. We're going to be back right after a message from some of the people who make this show possible. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Well, I think that's enough time spent in the library reading things. I think it's time for us to go party. And what better place is there to go party to celebrate 100 episodes of this fine, fine podcast than a new room of the house? That's right. We're going to the Rumpus Room. Hey, man. I've never been in the Rumpus Room before. This is kind of a cool place. I know. We just knocked down the wall. Next thing you know, there's a Rumpus Room. The question, though, that I have is... What the heck is a rumpus? A party. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's have a party and a rumpus at the same time. There we go. And, of course, why are we having a party? Because it's episode 100. Finally, after 200 years of doing this podcast, we finally hit episode 100. I know. It, it's kind of, uh, well, it's kind of shocking I've managed to stick with anything this long. <laughs> And on this regular basis. Yeah, I, actually, me too. Uh, I guess we ought to thank our listeners out there for forcing us into it, huh? Exactly. Well, 
so I've got a couple of thoughts and I know you've got a couple of thoughts and then we went out and we asked listeners like you who are now listening to this for your reactions to a hundred episodes and things that you liked. So why don't we go uh, dig into it? Uh, here are some of my thoughts about doing this after a hundred. Wow. Is this a lot of work? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love doing this, but I'm actually kind of amazed because it is, it is a fair amount of work, but it's so much fun to do. So I'm really uh, happy and of course, it enables both of us to do what we seemingly do best, which is talk a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if that's the thing I do best, but uh, I've had a lot of practice at it. Well, and to that point, so listeners will know I've referenced this every once in a while, but I actually track the overall runtime of the show loosely. But you're I, really sick. I know. I'm I'm a strange person. So across. All the so uh, all the released episodes. So actually, the first ninety nine episodes of Experimental Brewing, and the first sixty nine episodes of the Brew Files, we have now talked for twelve thousand eight hundred and eighty two minutes. I was afraid you were going to say twelve thousand hours. So that's that's not as scary as I thought it was going to be. But wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it's two hundred fourteen point seven hours, eight point nine days. So if you started our podcast, you could go a whole week without uh, ever stopping if you're just listening all the way through. No, I, I don't think anybody can survive that. Uh, 26.8 work days based on an eight-hour work day, uh, 5.4 work weeks. And if you have the average American commute, which is 60 minutes round trip, and God, I wish I had the average American commute, that is 230 commutes. <laughs> Uh, my commute is only 30 minutes when I commute, so I guess that maybe uh, I've got twice that, huh? Yeah, so it, the average commute is just slightly under, uh, or just slightly, yeah, just slightly under 60 minutes, so that's the reason for the, for the discrepancy between hours and commutes. You could commute for almost a full year and listen to a new episode every day. <laughs> but again, how many people could survive that? I think there are plenty of people out there who could survive that. Now, the other thing is, I've uh, other thoughts on this is we've gotten to do some really amazing stuff thanks to the show and our listeners, and lots of opportunities to make new things. I, I don't think I ever would have had a chance to go down to Brazil if not for the show. Um, yeah, and Australia too. And Australia, so so much fun. Um, and yes, there's more that we need to do because the other thing that I really do actually appreciate about the show is that it forces me to keep my head up, keep my head on a swivel. And watching and kind of thinking about what's new, what's exciting, what's different, and, well, you know, what do I need to try next? And you know what? It's a good thing one of us does that. I know, right? One of us can't be set in our ways. That's right. Now, Denny, how about you? Well, man, I'm I'm right there with you on the amount of work. It is a lot of work. And, uh, you know, I, I come to this from a background as an audio engineer running a post-production studio for 30 years. So I'm used to sitting and doing a lot of editing and stuff like that. And uh, I'd been out of that for a few years. And now I have a recording studio in my guest room. And I'm remembering just why it was that I got out of that business but at least at least this is our stuff and it's fun stuff so it's you know it's it's a lot of work but it's not like work yeah exactly one of the other cool things that i really like is that i continually learn new stuff from our listeners uh you know uh it just blows me away because i've been brewing a long time i brewed a lot of batches but you know there's always something out there that pops up and i'm going wow i never knew that so so that's really cool, and thank you to all of you out there for that. 
And I guess the last thing that I have been totally amazed about is uh, how many people listen to this show. Every place I go, I mean, just today I was uh, picking up some new glasses and uh, one of the guys in the optometry department said to the woman waiting on me, and you treat that guy right, he's homebrew royalty. And I'm going, geez, you know, and in Europe I got recognized and it just is amazing to me how many people all over listen to this podcast and uh, I'd like to thank each and every one of you personally, but I can't do that. So thanks everybody in a big group. There you go. And I mean, I, I also, I'll also echo your comment about, you know, being forced to learn new things or being confronted by new things where, you know, people write in with questions and I'm always kind of like, hmm, well, I don't know, but let's go find out. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. It kind of forces us to do research into topics that we wouldn't normally think about otherwise. Yep. And of course, we in that same vein, we reached out to the community to say, "Hey, you know, tell us what you've learned and listened to, and favorite moments from the podcast in the first hundred episodes." And I'm just going to get it out of the way. Uh, very first thing is that there was a disappointing result in the in the poll. Disappointing uh, to you, maybe. Well, I was going to say from a certain point of view. And one of the questions that we asked was whether or not people were pro uke or anti uke, and apparently, 73 percent of our audience has something fundamentally wrong with their childhoods because they're pro-uke. Three to one pro-uke. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, you know, the good thing was at least for a little while it was running there, you know, two-thirds uke, one-third uh, anti-uke, and I felt a little bit better. But now it's down to 27%, and that just makes me a little sad. <laughs> makes me think maybe I need to come up with another song so we have two of them to play. Oh, boy. Um <laughs> Make, okay. it, make it really simple. Maybe I'll learn how to play the ukulele. Yeah. It, can't, it doesn't get much simpler than the one that I did, man. Only two chords. So looking at what people had uh, written in, and we got a lot of great responses, and we're sorry if we can't use everybody's because, well, that would turn the show into three hours long. Uh, but there were a couple of major themes, I think, that most of the responses broke down on. And I think the first one we have to start with is probably the thing that we hammer on the most, which is simplicity. Yeah, man, uh, and it, it was really gratifying to find out uh, how many people have taken that theme to heart and given it a try, and it works for them. Uh, James Holland from New Jersey said, I've learned to keep it simple, do what I like, and love the uke. I was right Thank there you, with you for a while. <laughs> oh. From from Mike New, I absolutely love your realistic perspective on homebrewing. Sure, we could engineer a system to the nth degree, but to what benefit? Your expertise based on the fact that this is a hobby is very refreshing and keeps me in check to not overthink it. Well, man, you know, whatever system you like is the right system for you, but you're right no matter which of those systems you're using. Keep it fun. Don't overthink it. Yeah, exactly. And if overthinking is part of your way of being, well, you do you. Right. And, of course, our next comment comes from, well, it sounds like a quote of somebody who, well, I don't know. Uh, Robert Gutierrez uh, wrote in to say, Wart wants to be beer. That is right, man. That is the big lesson to take out of all of this. It is a fundamental truth of the universe. Yeah. Uh, Joshua W. from Eugene, and I don't know if I know Joshua or not, says, Brewing good beer at home is as easy or as difficult as I want to make it. That's right, man. It's not rocket science unless you want it to be. And Christian Shank from Scottsbluff, uh, Nebraska, says, I've really enjoyed learning so much from the podcast. They're always very informative, and it takes the worry out of homebrewing. Most important thing I've learned from your podcast is that brewing can be simple, and it should be simple. 
Complex setups and complex grain builds don't necessarily mean better beer, and oftentimes, it's best to start small. Over the course of nearly 100 episodes you've provided, you've kept the information relevant, enlightening, and funny, while still being clean and always appropriate, so I can listen with my kids around. And yeah, we do actually try and keep these types of things clean. Anybody who's ever hung out with me outside of the podcast world? (laughs) Both of us. Yeah, um, I, I tend to work a little more blue. (laughs) But, you know, again, we don't want to deny anybody the ability to listen to this under any circumstances. So uh, if you're if you're crazy enough to listen to us, we want to make it easy for you. Uh, And we are happy that uh, people are taking some of that advice about complexity is not necessarily complexity. Really? And I'll just kind of put a few together here. Uh, Rick DeGray from Northampton, Massachusetts says, the best thing about listening to you guys encompasses what homebrewing should be. Fun. Uh, Gabriel Ososman from Bark River, Michigan says, it's just beer. Have fun with it. And Adam Thomas from New Zealand said, it taught me to focus on enjoying brewing above all else. Love the mix of news, techniques, interviews, and banter. It's a good format. Enjoyed the specific focus of the brew files. Yay. And I just want, I, I want to say how gratifying it is that so many people have taken away that message that home brewing is fun. It's not something you stress over. It's something you enjoy. Yeah, I've got enough stress in my life called my day job. <laughs> I don't need yeah, I've hobby. got enough stress in my life called Drew. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, make it fun. Make it an antidote to your everyday life. Uh, and then in the theme of experimentation, uh, we had a couple of comments here. Uh, Jason Bachman from Arcadia. Hi, Jason. Uh, he said, it's okay to experiment. Learn to love trying not only new ingredients, but I've started trying yeast experiments. Prior to listening, it was American California yeast for everything. Now I have nine different cultures in the fridge. Yeah, sorry about that, buddy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really, man. You can blame us. Uh, Derek Springer likes deep dives via experiments to test beer knowledge. And Derek, remember, was on the podcast a couple, well, I guess over a year ago now. Uh, That's right. And then a closing note from Tim Hayes, one of our Igors, who said, I really love the Igor experiments. Please bring them back. And yes, we know. Uh, we are trying to get there yeah well we hope to do that uh but uh when we when we did them we discovered it was a lot more time consuming than we ever realized it would be so we're trying to figure out a way to make it work but never fear bringing back the experiments is high on the list of things that we want to get done yes indeed and then a bunch of comments about the uh relationship so dan little from uh, tallahassee florida he said i enjoy the honest disagreements that show there's more than one right way to do things and yes, anytime you put homebrewers together in a room, if you get 10 homebrewers in a room, you'll end up with 15 different ways to do one single thing, 12 of which will be right. Yeah, that's exactly correct, man. Uh, Tony Economos from Chester says, continuous learning about the homebrewing hobby I love while being entertained listening to the back and forth banter between art and science mindsets. I don't know which one of us is which there. Yeah, that's what I was just uh, trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's a little bit of each one in both of us, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd agree. It's a, this proves there is no right or wrong way to make beer. That's right. The only right way is the way that ends up making good beer, and you get to decide that yourself. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to episode 200 and everything in between. I should live that long. You should. I kind of need you to. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, we'll give it a try. And then Jared Sandifer in Norwood, Colorado says, uh, you started my obsession with saisons. Woo! 
I enjoy any hopping technique tips shared, including learning about biotransformation. Enjoyed listening to the friendly banter between Denny and Drew. Just seemed like two nice guys you'd love to share a beer with. Uh, I don't know about that, but I'll take a beer. Uh, now using MechaGrade Malt, thanks to you, and would love to hear more from Seth at MechaGrade. What a brilliant guy. Jared, hold on to your shorts, buddy. <laughs> That's right. The next segment right after this, we're going to be talking to Seth uh, about a lot of cool new stuff that MechaGrade is doing. Will Allward from Raleigh, North Carolina, wrote in and said, I really enjoy when Denny does solo remote interviews with people. It's almost like he gets a little extra pep in his step. Almost like when you add a little gypsum to your IPA to make the hops really pop. Not to worry, Drew. I also really enjoy when you go ham on one particular style on the brew files. It's usually a style I have an interest in brewing or something I've never heard of and find super fascinating. Basically, you guys are the yin and yang of the brewing world. Wow, that's nice. That's better than being uh, the frickin' frack. (laughs) But we're actually the click and clack of the brewing world, uh, you know? In case you guys hadn't noticed, uh, we kind of like idolize car talk, and uh, a lot of what we do uh, comes from their influence on us. You got the much better laugh. Uh, well, you know, man, I worked on that goofy laugh for years to get it. So, uh, But I'm also, if, if you enjoy me doing solo interviews, uh, there's one coming up soon. Uh, on my way home from Hop and Brew School in a week or so, I'll be stopping by Hood River to talk to Mr. Brian Perky who is the North American sales manager for Lalamond and has been involved in brewing and yeast for God years. longer than I, yeah, longer than I've known him, which has been about 20 years. So, uh, we'll take a, a deep dive into, uh, yeast and, uh, and just his experience in the world of brewing. He was brewed, he brewed at full sale, a number of cool places. So, uh, yeah, there's one of those coming up soon. There you go. And of course, with a couple last responses, Kim Fowler from Marina, California, he said, I've learned a lot of the secret knowledge behind brewing. Bits of wisdom from you guys that help me understand the theory of brewing and tailor my process for a desired result. Yay. Cool, man. And David Evans from Greenville, South Carolina says, What's not to love? Two dudes drinking beer, talking about beer, teaching me to make better beer. Well, that's great, David. And here's our deep, dark secret is... We almost never drink beer when we're recording. It's like a really special occasion when that happens. Well, wait, you don't drink while you're recording? I don't. I drink water. Well, okay. But (laughs) I I did like uh, David also concluded with a comment that he says, on top of that, I appreciate how well you balance each other out by not being afraid to oppose each other and not letting one opinion dominate. It's refreshing to hear in a homebrew world full of strong personalities. And to me, I think this is one of the other things I've learned in the course of doing this podcast is I've always felt like you and I are fairly closely aligned in a lot yeah. of this stuff, but yep. it does turn out that no, there are these parts where we disagree, but you know, we both recognize, eh, okay. That's the way you do it. This is the way I do well, it. it. It's like, it's like somebody said a few minutes ago, you know, there is no single right way to make beer. Uh, it's whatever works for you. And we've both brewed enough to figure that out. So even though we kind of share the same general philosophy, we have different approaches to how we get there. Indeed. All right. And then, so a couple of favorite moments from listeners. And uh, Denny, I think this one speaks to, you know, how fast we edit. James, <laughs> oh, Holland, yeah. from, uh, James Holland from uh, one of the previous comments. He said, uh, anytime you guys say you'll edit out mistakes or obviously forget to edit something out. Yep. <laughs> we try yeah, not to man. do that. 
Yeah, I've uh, I've actually now taken to doing an idiot check, sitting down and listening to the podcast all the way through once I get done with the editing. And if you uh, if you knew how many hours I'd spent listening to each episode by that time, you'd realize what a sacrifice that is. Even when I do that, I realized in the last one I still missed something. Uh, but you know, that's yep. the way it goes. That's the charm of it, isn't it? Yes, exactly. We're not professional producers, although we try. Really, uh, Brad <laughs> uh, Brad Warner from Chattanooga, Tennessee, said. Learning about open fermentation, my Saison did not stall when I did it. Yes, I'm going to keep preaching the power of open fermentation. Yeah, really, man. It's uh, it's great. And everybody who tries it goes, damn, it worked. Yep. Joe Charles from <laughs> Ellendale, Delaware, has one kind of directed at me. He uh-huh. says, well, not so much one moment, but I find it quite amusing when Denny gets frustrated in a disagreement. I don't know why, but it's hilarious to me. It has that old man, get off my lawn, a damn whippersnappers vibe to it. I also really enjoyed the episode with the SoCal service arrows. Let me, let me tell you that that frustration comes from people dismissing my arguments as those of an old man saying, get off my lawn or you damn whippersnappers. If, uh, yeah, but it when, sounds like it. Well, you know what? If, but if you don't give me that crap, then I don't get like that. There you go. All right. And then Alexander Steffens from uh, Berlin, he said, it's hard to pick one, but I believe the entire story around the Doug Weiser uh, of Doug uh, would be my favorite. And uh, Doug is uh, Doug King who taught me how to brew and then uh, died years ago. Uh, it has so many things I connect to as a human. The person who introduced Drew into the hobby, the local community, the Maltos Falcons, that was a home to both of them. The tragic loss of that person and his brewing legacy that homebrewers around the globe might rebrew while reminiscing about a man they have never known in person. Yeah. So another one of the things I love about homebrewing. And yeah, Doug was a good dude. Yeah, man. And it's it's a really homebrewing is a great chance to make a real personal connection, uh, you know, with with people, with a with a beer that has a connection to a person. Uh, it, that's that's great, man. Tina Koopman says the Party Guile episode was one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever listened to. Wow. And that was a lot of math. Yeah, well, go expand your horizons, Tina. (laughs) I've learned so much from you guys and enjoy both of your personalities as well, which really makes the show. And the Talk About Beer song. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. Yeah, I get to roll my eyes every time we do that one live. Yeah. And then uh, Suna Penderson from uh, Denmark uh, wrote in to say, I really like the episode where Drew podcasted a live brew day with fellow brewers where everyone got mildly drunk. And that would mildly. be the, that would be the brew with the Falcon day. And yeah, I'll put the same emphasis on mildly. Every time we do that sort of thing, it's always a little bit of a risk, but <laughs> for the most part, yeah. I'm kind of a, a semi-professional. So we usually make it work. Yeah. It worked out. Okay. Jared Dacredin from St. Louis, Missouri says, my favorite moment was probably an episode 61 hop terpenes or maybe an episode 66 middling beer. I love the science that explains the processes that make beer and food in general taste good. It's really cool to think about how humans have been taming yeast for who knows how long until recently not understanding what they're doing. I, I think the interesting one is that there's now an argument out there that says yeast, you know, yeast tamed humans. Yeah, well, <laughs> could could very well be. And our, our final comment, we just had to get this one, and this comes from our dear, dear friend and uh, and often Igor, Eric Pierce. Uh, Eric, 
Thanks, man. You're one of the people that make doing this really worthwhile. We appreciate your support. Uh, we appreciate just knowing you. Eric says, you're making me pick? That's like asking me what my favorite beer is, so I'll give you three. The first moment was a few years back when my car radio broke, and I decided to listen to podcasts on my way to and from work instead. I found the Experimental Brewing Podcast, I think around episode 13. I remember thinking, olive oil? Who puts olive oil in beer? I got to see what these knuckleheads are all about. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been listening ever since. The next favorite moment is when you guys let me play podcaster to do the interview with John Way in Singapore, episode 61. Ah, Thank you so much for that, Eric. That was a blast. And third is Denny picking my idea for Drew to come up with a recipe for beet saison. Can't wait to brew that. Cheers, and here's to creating more favorite moments. And thank you, Eric. Thank each and every one of you out there for sticking with us for 100 episodes. Uh, you guys make this why we do it. Uh, and, and I, I love it. There are days when I just don't think I can do this one more time. I see stuff like this and it's like, I'm rejuvenated. Yeah. Denny always needs to pick me up. So don't forget, write in, give us some compliments. (laughs) Denny appreciates it. Yeah, really, really. Tell me I'm handsome and I sing like a, like a, a God. And that you have hair that flows like a frozen icy river. Yeah, right. I wish. I wish. Okay. <laughs> enough of this. Enough of this self-congratulatory rumpus. Let's uh, let's get out of here and head over to the lounge and uh, talk to Seth, shall we? Let's do that. Indeed. It's time to get multi. <laughs> indeed. We're going to take a really quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Seth Klon of Mecca Great Estate Malt about all the cool stuff that's going on there. So please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome back, everybody. Today, for the lounge, we are talking to our Good friend, Seth Klon of Mecca Grade Estate Malt over in Madras, Oregon. Hey, Seth, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, and we're really glad to have you. So uh, before we get too deep into what's going on there, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, what Mecca Grade is and what you guys do there? Um, Mecca Grade is an estate malt house, and so what makes us really unique is that when we talk about estate malt, um, we grow everything on site. Um, it comes from our own family farm. Uh, we have a little over a thousand irrigated acres, so everything is just in one big block here. And um, we've been farming the same ground since 1904. Um, so uh, our whole uh, concept is based on terroir being, you know, an impact on flavor and beer. 
And that the only, the thought is that the only way to do that is, you know, um, isolate varieties, keep everything as close to the, the malt house as possible. I mean, everything we have is grown within basically a two mile radius of the malt house. Um, and just kind of really focus on, uh, lower kilned malts and, and really super flavorful and unique, uh, what we call foundation malts, but essentially base malts. So about two thirds of what we make is, uh, Pelton. Um, it's our, it's our Pilsner style malt. All the malts have kind of these kind of uh, cool names or weird names, some people think, <laughs> uh, but they're all named after old ghost towns around us. So when you can do something basically from scratch, like start a malt house from scratch, you don't have to kind of go by the rules of everyone. You can name them after, you know, little American ghost towns around you instead of <laughs> old European cities. So, yeah, man, uh, I, got, I got to admit, when I first heard the names of some of them, I was like, <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess Oregon has, I, I, I think this is accurate, but I think they have, uh, the state has the highest per capita amount of ghost towns in the, in the nation. Um, I just think it, a lot of it had to do with, you know, we're kind of still in the old West out here. And so a lot of people going to strike it rich, you know, going out West and then kind of leaving behind a trail <laughs> of they didn't. broken dreams in the high <laughs> desert. Yep. Yep. But no, we're still doing good out here. Um, it's about as far as I know, I could probably count the original, uh, homesteading families that have kind of made it, uh, out here, out here in Madras. There's maybe about four, four, the rest of us, about four of us that have kind of held on to that. And then the rest of everyone came out, you know, in the, in the late forties, um, when irrigation water finally came to our area. And that's kind of the second wave of, of farmers, but, uh, yeah, we're doing really good out here, and um, really, like I said, it's it's really been fun. I've been, I kind of backed off farming this summer, and I was able to find someone to to basically replace myself on the farm. Um, so I've been going out. Uh, the brewing community is so small. I've been I've been brewing with you know, his friends, doing cool collaboration beers. A lot of it's like. Oh, Seth's coming into town. Let's do some weird Viking thing. So <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'll I'll throw a grass straw bale into the back of the in the back of the jeep, and we'll go do that. Or it's been brewing with a lot of Kavike, uh yeast lately. Um, seems to be the the new hotness, you know. And I really like it. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been it's been a blast. And like I said, the the education component of it of it's huge. That's that's what we kind of focus on. What do you think's been the hardest part about educating people? I, a lot of it's just, uh, we get kind of stuck on our own bubble here on the farm and I really like it here. Like I don't really, we got everything we need here. And <laughs> sometimes it's like hard to leave. Um, a lot of it's just, you know, we have people right down the road from us. So like take Bend, for example, we live in central Oregon, Bend, I didn't even say in our own hometown. So Bend is an hour away, uh, a lot of tourism, um, people driving through have no idea. And um, our, our little hometown here of Madras is such, it's sustained. It's a, it's a little farming town. So we're completely sustained by, um, really, really specialized agriculture. Um, but with like, you know, this huge urban rural divide, most people don't know, um, what we do up here. And I would, I would kind of further say, like, I don't think most beer drinkers know, for the most part, they know kind of what they know malt is the word, right? But it's like, well, what's malt? And the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't know that it comes from grain. And at the end of the day, it has to be grown by a farmer. And so one of the really cool things that we have up here is, like, we have a tasting room. Um, and we're giving tours throughout the week. And so a lot of it's just trying to get people out. It's kind of hard, you know, to get people out to the farm. Um, we're not too far away from Portland, so we get people stopping by all the time. But 
a lot of it's like when you have something like a tangible product, like in basically I mean, beer is an agricultural product, um, and you can show people, you know, the ground that you're growing things on, you can talk and you can walk through basically the entire process. Um, it just makes more of an impact. And, and I think the light bulb moment comes on for a lot of people like, oh, this is, uh, this is important. Um, because farmers get, you know, forgotten quite a bit. I mean, there's, I think they say something along the lines of like half a percent of the, you know, the American workforce is actually production agriculturists. And that's, that's a big change from, you know, back in the early 1900s, you think 20s, 30s, and where, you know, 30% of the people were probably involved with production ag. It's good, you know, that people don't have to be killing themselves having to harvest food all the time and we can do other things. But um, just kind of a section of the workforce that just kind of gets forgot, forgotten, even right down the road from people. So speaking of getting people out to the farm, Mm-hmm. You guys do events there too, man. Which uh, I got to go to the eclipse there a year or so ago, and it was was it two years ago? What, whatever it was, uh, yeah. you know, it was it was like a stunningly good time uh, there, partying away and checking out your operation. And you got another event coming up pretty soon here, huh? Yeah. Um, so the having the eclipse out here kind of spurred this idea. There was a lot of people that had really great time. I think most people did. Um, and the, the, it kept on coming up. It's like, you need to do something else. Like and it kind of evolved into someone had the idea of, uh, having like a, a, a brewing man out here instead of like a burning man or whatnot. And so we started really thinking about it and I was thinking, you know, if we're going to do this, I want to make it, I was thinking about doing it actually this last spring, but just ran out of time to do it justice, what I wanted to do. But, um, you know, I really want, uh, kind of an event there's not really anything like this but an event where home brewers professional brewers can come together uh, and it's all centered around uh, kind of like a relocalization of of ingredients whether that's barley or hops or yeast or you know all these other ingredients that we can that we can add to beer that are kind of representative of our own you know flora and fauna or you know around us um and and so we're, we're gonna we're gonna do that um kind of dip our toes into it by having like this home brewing contest. So uh, it's on, we have a separate website for it. It's called brewingman.org. Um, but it's, it's open to all home brewers that want to um, brew a beer with local ingredients. So when we talk about, I think it, it might kind of seem a little bit daunting to people when they think about, Oh man, or how am I going to source this stuff? When we have, when we talk about like sourcing from your locale, that can be however you want to define it. So like in the Pacific Northwest, we're really spoiled with hops and grain and, and a lot of different things, fruits and vegetables that grow right close to us. Um, so maybe for you, that means um, maybe for you, that means I'm going to source hops from my backyard, or maybe if you don't have that, maybe you source them from anywhere in your region. It's kind of open-ended. Um, what I really want to do, there, there, there's like an essay that comes along with that. Basically, it's just a little paragraph. If you do submit a beer, um, that says kind of what your rationale for, you know, sourcing the ingredients was, what the recipe was, because at this thing, we're going to be judging in the morning of September 28th. Um, and then I kind of wanted to really, if people are sending in beer from all over the country, I wanted to make sure that we had um, that beer story and that we could, you know, uh, we could represent that as best as we could. And we can share that with all of our friends that are going to be here. Because like I said, we'll have, we'll have professional brewers and, and home brewers. It's kind of like, that whole vibe you got from being at the eclipse. Um, but this year just kind of got so late in the year. Um, what we're going to do is uh, every year we actually have a harvest party. 
So instead of like the two, three day extravaganza we had at the eclipse, we just pack everything into one day. Um, and it's open to whoever wants to come. So it's basically a customer appreciation deal. It's all free. Um, all we ask is just to RSVP. So we have a headcount going into it for catering. Um, but yeah, we're going to be tasting all the Brewing Man beers um, after they're judged of a big bottle share. We'll have music. We'll have a big barbecue. Um, and uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of different beer on tap, kind of, like I said, celebrating uh, local ingredients and some kind of interesting stuff. I'm going to I'm going to brew some stuff. I'm not going to enter the competition, but um, I've actually already started kind of stashing away beer that I've been running around and brewing with friends, and um, should be a really cool time. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely yeah. planning on being there, and I am really, really looking forward to it. Uh, you have such a cool barn there for doing those kind of events. Yeah, no, and it's um, everyone that like the whole community is really cool, and everyone gets together. The nice thing about coming out here that I've always heard is like, yeah, you know, I it's not like a big beer fest. Like you're not going to be packed in. It's all people that are, you know, part of that community. Um, we all get it. Um, and it's just good just to kind of go and, and uh, hang out and just be able to shoot the breeze with people. And it always ends up being a really good time out here. Yeah, for sure. And, and do I recall you were going to make this a benefit for the Heifer Project? Is that? Yeah. So like as far as the home brewing competition goes, um, all proceeds, I think it's $12 per entry and you can do unlimited entries. Um, there's different categories and stuff, and there's an actual like Eventbrite um, website for that. So that's where you can purchase your basically your entries. But all proceeds go to um, Heifer International, which is a really really cool organization that um, that that we've always tried to to you know help promote and to sponsor. But they actually take the proceeds and they go into developing countries and communities that um, you know what they're doing is um, training people and giving them the skills they need to. Um, for agriculture and really changing people's lives and they do so much stuff it's crazy so if, you, if anyone ever wants to check it out i believe it's like heifernational.org um and or it might just be as heifer.org anyways check them out um like i said all the proceeds are going to that and then we're gonna have some really cool prizes too my sister's been kind of um curating some really cool stuff <laughs> so i think she's going to be posting on instagram but she got like pendleton blanket for like the grand prize or like the best beer bunch of like gemstones and rocks we've picked up from rock hound shows i mean just kind of some cool stuff from the high desert um and so i think we're going to start putting that out there to get people kind of excited but there is still time to enter um i know people were kind of nervous about that but um it'd be great if if people wanted to to, you know submit this stuff and it'd be the perfect venue if you're into that kind of uh into that kind of beer see drew this is like be a perfect place to enter your uh, saison guacamole I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and that actually, that's a kind of a, a thing that I've talked about in the past, that whole localism type of idea. And it's funny to think that I mean, in the beer world as we stand right now, I, mean, I just literally last weekend helped brew a beer using, you know, malt from Idaho with hops from South Africa with yeast sourced from Norway and I don't know, there was probably something from Germany in there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to to see like. I also talk a lot about constraints, and I think constraints are good for recipe development. Interesting to see like how that constraint of the idea of like what does local mean, you know, will play out on the beers that you'll receive. Yeah, well, hopefully we receive some. I'd be even happy with like fifty entries, like because it's it's really hard like throwing a homebrewing competition like for the you know the first time, and then if you keep at it, it's kind of like slowly builds from there. But um, we've already I've already heard of some of the entries coming in. It's pretty wild. 
I think a lot of people are just kind of waiting till they have beers in hand and then gonna, you know, make the call on, on purchasing the ticket or whatever off the website. But I've been involved with some of the beer, um, uh, you know, just people asking questions like, you know, what is locale? Like, I think the thing that we'd want to get across to people is like, we're not, we're not going to disqualify people based on like what their ingredients are. Cause there's a lot of places mm-hmm. in the country where it's like, yeah, you might not be able to find hops or anything like that. Um, but the idea is just to be kind of looking around and just um, keeping an open mind about like what is around you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but the, the constraint thing really, I do that in my own design work. So I've always found out sometimes the more constraints that you can put upon yourself instead of having like this huge, you know, um, you know, blank canvas of all these possibilities and you almost, it's almost too much. If you do kind of constrain yourself, you can get even more creative. And that's kind of always helped me kind of get out of like writer's block or, you know, or, or anything like that. It's, I think it's sometimes kind of liberating. Yeah. Denny and I've had this conversation many a time. Yeah, we have, man. So, uh, what's the deadline for entries if somebody wants to enter? I think it's like, we're going to have the competition on the 28th. So we're going to be judging in the morning. I, I, I believe we said something like, oh, try to get them to there to us by like Wednesday on the 25th. Okay. Um, so, yep. Yeah. Yep. According, according to your website, Wednesday, September 25th. Yep. Yep. So there's still quite a bit of time, especially if you're making like a, if you're making like a pale ale, you know, with some like, I was wanting to do one. I'm going to do one for the actual, to serve there at the event, um, not to enter, but I'm doing a, uh, a carrot um, seed pale ale. Um, and so they're one of the big crops in Madras, our biggest cash crop is carrot seed. Um, and so I went out and cut a bunch of flowers and I've heard rumor that if you boil, um, carrot seeds, so they're all in the umbel for like 60 minutes, you get really cool apricot flavors. So I'm going to try that a couple different things like that. So it'd be kind of cool, but, um, all the categories are based for the most part off of ABV. So like we have like a best session beer, um, which is just like 5% or less. Um, I was trying to think of a good word for like just kind of a sta- like not standard but more of like a central beer. So central being you know like anywhere from like five uh, five to eight uh, and a half for ABV, the best big beer. And the cool thing is like we're not constrained either by like like strict BJCP um, rules. So a lot of it's gonna. There's a really cool event that Oregon has for professional beer called like the Oregon Beer Awards. Um, and a lot of that's just kind of these looser categories and it's, it's people in the industry tasting these things and, and, uh, recognizing just good tasting beer in that kind of category. So I think that's what's maybe trips some people up. It's like, oh my gosh, if sometimes it's easier, you know, like when we're talking about constraints, if you're going to be entering a certain category and you were the best at that, sometimes that's pretty challenging. And so when you have this whole kind of basically the only constraints on this is to try to use as local as possible. But then it's like, well, what style is that? It doesn't really matter as long as it fits within those, you know, like ABV guidelines. So it's kind of the sky's the limits there. So it's just a really, really different way of looking at it. I know I have some buddies that brew quite a bit, kind of backed off of entering homebrew competitions this year, and, and they, they thought the concept was really cool um, and just really different. So um, we're excited about it. I don't really know of anyone else that's doing something like this, and so – if it's a thing or if it becomes a thing, that would be that would be awesome. And it's just going to kind of go from there. Yeah, I've always wanted to do a competition where it was color and strength. So, you know, session blonde, medium blonde, large blonde, 
you know, session amber, blah, 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 just for the exact same reason that you're talking about, kind of break people out of, out of the style restrictions and give a little more freedom to play with. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of hard to like, for some people to get their minds wrapped around. It's like, well, you know, kind of thing. I just say, make, if you have like a, if you have a, a recipe that you really like, <laughs> maybe to see what happens when you add some like, you know, other local ingredients into it and, and, and see, um, there is a separate category for like, uh, you know, um, spontaneous or, or mixed or sour cultures. Um, so when the other beers come up, you don't, they don't have to be like a mixed fermentation at all. They're, they could be anything from like a pale ale, like I said, like adding carrot seed to it. Um, yeah. And then we also have a thing for like best meter cider. We're kind of doing that and seeing how many entries are get into that. Um, but yeah, it should be, should be really interesting. I'm just excited. I mean, I just have this vision in my mind of like, you know, getting a beer from all the way on the other side of the country and, um, you know, having this, having this story attached to it and, and it'd be really cool to be able to taste everyone's particular, you know, basically taste everyone's particular terroir on that. And, uh, if we can represent that well here, then that's, that's the ultimate goal. And that is a really cool idea, man. And mm-hmm. it, and it's really true to what you guys are doing there on the farm too. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of what you're doing there on the farm, you're also working on some uh, barley development, aren't you? Yeah, and that was the exciting thing too. Though um, I'll kind of talk about that, but uh, remind me, those beers will actually be um, pouring at the Brewing Man deal. So um, we'll have a couple different slips and stuff for people to to uh, judge or not judge, but kind of weigh in on that. But like to, to kind of circle back really quick, um, we are about the only malt house that is breeding proprietary and malt house big or small, but the only malt house is breeding proprietary varieties of barley. So, you know, like what they've done with all the um, hop breeding in the past, you know, couple decades, um, and you get some really cool things like Citra and Amarillo uh, that doesn't exist in barley breeding at all. And so we're doing it. So <laughs> we, uh, we, about three years ago, um, we worked really close with Oregon State University and their barley breeding program. Um, we, uh, there was this research going into spring two row, um, barley, which is what we, was what we grow on our farm is all spring barley. Um, the research um, funding kind of got pulled from that and there was all of these spring two, two row plants sitting in a greenhouse at Oregon State University not really being used for anything. So my dad and I approached them, um, bought all of those plants and over the course of three years kind of entered a public private partnership with Oregon State University where we grew those plants up on our farm and then over the years weeded out or not even weeded but kind of cold out um, and selected for varieties that would do really well in the high desert under irrigation and like kind of really intensive agriculture. Um, So now we own five varieties. Um, They're just numbers now but I know what the crosses are. They're all crosses with full pints. So full pints, the, the single variety that we use um, and it's from Oregon State, but all the new all the new stuff is full pint crossed with. You know, there's a couple really um, older German varieties in there. The one I'm really excited about is full pint crossed with Maris Otter. We'll have that, um, but we only. I want to try that one. <laughs> I, it looks uh, so in the field. It looks pretty good. The malt specs are, eh, you know, but the malt specs for full pint aren't super great. It just looks kind of like a dog on 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 paper. Um, but then when you malt with it, it's like, Oh my gosh, what is all the, what is all this unique flavor? So we know variety has an impact on flavor. We know our malting process, which is completely different than anyone else is doing is having an impact on that as well. 
Um, but I've just always found, like, you know, you start going back to some of these older heirloom. We say heirloom, you know, anything that was bred uh, 25 years plus ago kind of thing. Um, it, we just know that it has a lot more flavor, but the problem is they're, they're a lot harder to grow. They're a lot harder to malt. And when you look at them on a piece of paper, it's like, this does not look like any of the modern stuff, like you think two-row or anything like that. And it's like, well, it doesn't. But if you can successfully malt it and you know what you're getting into and you start brewing with it, there's a whole world of unique flavor out there that people aren't really messing around with. Um, so I'm really excited about the full-time Amaris Otter. But I'm also, I saw the I saw some of the numbers. Um, um, there's one on there, like full-time by Violetta. The, the numbers look even better than Copeland, which makes up most of the two-row that people buy um, today uh, as an approved variety. But the thing is, like, even though it looks outstanding on paper, uh, what does it taste like in beer? And that's the big question, right? Um, so it's, it's crazy. I've always said it's crazy to think that, you know, everyone is breeding for yield, uh, disease resistance, extract, essentially, in, in, in malt. But no one is making beers with them. Like basically, if they're make if beers a flavor is a is a consideration, it's just let's make something that's inoffensive. And so <laughs> we end up with like a well, lot. We end up with like a lot of um, malts that you know that's that's easy for um, bigger people to process or like you know larger malt houses to process, which they totally get. Um, but then, kind of at some point, flavor a lot of flavor kind of fell by the wayside as a consideration. Um, well, it's so, just like yeah. where hops were. It's just like where hops were not that long ago. You know, where everything was just about breeding for disease resistance and how much alpha acid you could reasonably pull into extract. Mm-hmm. So now it sounds like you know we're trying to get that same wonderful explosion of hop varieties and hop flavor potentials into and kind of fundamentally the base ingredient for a beer. Right. I ideally like what I like to do when I'm brewing is like only use. Like I, I really try to constrain myself to maybe using one or two malts. And so if you can have a barley malt that is just exploding with flavor, you don't need to have a lot of other specialty malt heaped on top of that because that malt itself is kind of a special special malt. Um, and so we got down to the five varieties this year uh, for this. We call it the Next Pint Project. And this summer, um, we had enough seed that we got it to Oregon State they have a mini malter. Um, it looks like this kind of upright drum that they do small batch malting in, like 200-pound batches. And um, they also, as part of their um, uh, brewing science program, have a really awesome uh, pilot brewery. It's actually like, really expensive. It's comes out of Germany. I forget the I forget the brand name on that, but it's um, basically I think the same one that Deschutes uh, Brewing down the road from from us got one similar to that. Um, it's pretty awesome. Um, but they made beers, um, single malt, single hop Pilsners out of them here uh, last month. And so now they've been going to, they're going to go to a sensory panel um, that just identifies unique flavors and another sensory panel, a consumer preference panel, I should say, that's going to be drinking these beers and then seeing if anyone actually prefers any of them. <laughs> <laughs> got to the end of this whole project and not, done anything like made anything new or novel which is the ultimate goal right but at the end of the day it still has to make good tasting beer and uh we'll see what happens but you'll be able to taste them all at um that 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 um harvest party and brewing that thing that we're gonna have oh man i am looking yeah. forward to that <laughs> yeah and now i just i just keep enjoying i now i need to think of a name for it 
So if, <laughs> if any if any of the listeners think of a good name, it's kind of crazy when you think like I am naming a variety of barley or a, you know basically a barley variety because we name the malt whatever. But yeah, it's kind of cool and it's all protected now, so it's going to be our thing. The other really interesting thing, like working with the university, was um, I don't think they were super comfortable with like making it a straight private, like we own all of this stuff. And so what we did um, with them is that anything that um, anything that didn't happen to grow well here, so basically anything that we um, didn't select to move forward with the program is now public. Uh, it's all open source. So everyone everyone has access to that in our work, and um, they can they can source from that. Um, which is, which is, that's really cool, man. That's really great. So, so basically you, you're keeping the best one for yourself and the other ones, anybody's welcome to use. Is that the way it's working? Yeah. Yeah. So like, and that's the thing is like, we were selecting specifically, we have some, we had a pretty unique um, environment here where it's like super dry, this certain elevation. We're similar to Yakima, but we just don't have the heat units that Yakima has. Mm-hmm. Um, so the stuff that made it through the program and on the farm here really is going to thrive in the Central Oregon high desert. So like all the other stuff that didn't make it, it might work great someplace else in a different right. climate. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just I've always been a big proponent of finding things that work well in your area and going for it. Um, we have friends that have like riverbend malting out in North Carolina. They have thoroughbred six row barley because it grows really well in North Carolina. It's one of the, the few varieties that does well out there and the stuff's phenomenal. So people, if, if you're, if you're malting or you're focusing on this stuff, really, I, I think it's really, I guess it just kind of goes back to our philosophy of just trying to make things and source things from as close to possible and kind of celebrate that everything has different flavors and it's all good. Yeah, really, man. I mean, your malt is definitely unique, and I, I know that that's partially due to, to the uh, variety of barley you grow. It's partially due to that monster machine that you built to, to uh, malt it in. Uh, but I'm, I'm just really, really excited to see what the heck you guys have come up with now. Yeah, and at the end of the day, hopefully it makes better beer. That's that's really the ultimate goal. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. When you were talking about how it looks good on paper, it's like, well, yeah, man, that's a, that's a great way to start. But uh, it, we drink the beer. We don't just measure it. And so yeah. that's why I'm, I'm really happy to hear about these taste trials you're doing and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm going to have like a little – I think I'll have a couple different sheets and people can taste through everything and weigh in because we honestly – I haven't tasted any of them, um, but that's – that's kind of really exciting and a little nerve-wracking to think that the ultimate selection criteria for any of these varieties and what we pursue, because we're only going to really go for one, um, will be the, the finished flavor in beer. Right. Um, so, so hopefully there's something good there. Oh, man, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, too. Drew, anything else you want to ask Seth before we let him go take his kids to the air show? All right, and so just to make sure, you've got brewman.org where people can go sign up for both the Brewingman competition, mm-hmm. make a donation to Heifer International, and also register to attend the party. And then after that, you've also got all this wonderful malt and all these projects that you're playing around with. Where can people find your malt if they're not somewhere near matters? We, we came up with like a more of a streamlined website, so they can find all of our stuff. Um, we have a retailer's page on our website, and the website itself is mechagrade.com. Uh, we work with some pretty awesome retailers as far as like homebrew, 
Uh, if anyone ever wants, if anyone ever has a question, feel free to email me. My email is Seth at mechagrade.com. We have people constantly asking about recipes and what malt works best and what. And that's really fun for me to, to hopefully answer those questions and get a lot of email at times about, you know, how much their their recipes improve by just switching out, you know, something for like Metolius or one of our other malts. Well, you know, um, man, and I've said many times that my rye IPA took a real turn for the better when I went to Mecca grade, uh, when I used your Lamata for the base malt and your rye. And I couldn't even make my American mild if it wasn't for your malt, man, because it just got so much flavor to it. Well, that means a lot, and it's—I I, got to taste those beers, and they're awesome. So I'm, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad. And then, yeah, if you're coming out um, for it, bring some beer. Um, like, just everyone is welcome. So, home brewers, professional brewers—it's going to be just a really good mix of people. Um, it should be a great time. Uh, but yeah, just. Um, would be really helpful is if you're planning on attending. Um, there's just an RSVP on the brewingman.org website. I think it's backslash RSVP, but you'll find it. Um, come have a fun time. There's camping. I think we need to make that explode. Like people can come out and camp um, if they want. Um, and we're also going to have a shuttle between. Um, there's a really good hotel in Matters that we partnered up with um, called Cross Keys, and so they're going to have a shuttle service that runs. Um, you know, 10 miles back into town so people don't have to worry about driving and whatnot. They can just focus on meeting new people and having a fun time. Yeah, man, I camped last time. This time I'm going for the motel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we got, we got some pretty – Matters says like that one – It's it's they got some pretty nice hotels, but that the one in town is really nice, and they've we've been talking with them back and forth about doing this for, for a while. So I think it's just a good good way to do it. Cool. Yeah. Well, we have been talking to Mr. Seth Klon from Mecca Grade Estate Mall. They have some big things going. Seth, man, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us today. Yeah, it was really good catching up, and uh, hopefully we go uh, see you out there. Uh, I, I'll definitely be there. Hopefully a lot of our listeners, or at least some of our listeners, will be there too. And let yeah. me know when you're heading over to this area again sometime. Yeah, sounds good. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Have a great afternoon. You too. All right. Bye bye. What a guy. What 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 a vision he has, huh? And what a farm in the middle of in the middle of Oregon. No, I mean I'm 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 super stoked about it. Uh, about some of the things that he's playing with. I can't wait to try some of these half pint, full pint uh, hybrids that he's doing because I mean his malt's already interesting enough. But now we have right. a chance to really expand more. And one of the things that that we didn't really get to talk about that much was yeah a lot of Brewers aren't really super aware of malt breeds, right? You know, that's just oh, that's my. They're they're aware of malt types, but they have they have no conception of the underlying barley except for say Maris Otter, you know, and everything else is like oh wait what what was that? So it'll be really interesting to see if we can actually get that as a a topic to start talking about. Yeah, exactly. And one other thing that he kind of mentioned in passing uh, that makes a huge difference in the flavor of his malts, other than the variety, is his custom malting machine. Seth kind of like learned to malt by doing it at home, and when he decided that it was time for the farm to start doing it on a commercial basis, he designed his own machine and had it built for them. And it's I've never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, I think I have a picture of it someplace, so maybe we can throw that up on the website too. Uh, but it, his mall has such unique and delicious flavor. 
I, I just can't wait to see where it goes. And he's such a wonderful guy. If any of you out there are free uh, September 28th and uh, have a wild hair to come to Central Oregon, it's going to be a great event there. Yeah, so for people who aren't in Oregon, I mean, obviously you can drive to Central Oregon, but let's say me, how do I get there? Well, you could fly into Bend. I think the Madras even has an airport. Uh, probably the the best thing to do would be fly into Bend, rent a car, and drive over. There you go. So easy peasy in this well-connected world to get yourself to Madras, Oregon, and be able to check out a working commercial small-scale malt farm and enjoy a hell of a party. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, man, I guess it's uh, about time to wrap this thing up. Huh? Yep, time to get some questions, get some quick tips, and get something other than beer. Alrighty, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Inspired by iconic Belgian beers, perfect for summer, Y-East is releasing the three favorite Belgians, or Dree Favorita Belga, this quarter. 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3538 Leuven Pale Ale, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are available now through the end of September. These original private culture collection strains are sought after for wit beers, Belgian pale ales, strong ales, blonde ales, Flanders, and more for good reason. The aromatics of fruit orchards and fields at harvest, quenching tartness, effervescent citrus, florals and spiciness, complexity and balance. Qualities like these are irresistible for pairing with fresh-picked fruit such as cherries, peaches, apricots, and raspberries. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. about to wrap this show up with some questions and answers a quick tip and something other than beer so let's kick into those questions huh? yeah exactly and our first question actually came from dan little who you heard about uh, heard from earlier in the comment section in the rumpus room um and he wrote in to me on my facebook page actually so remember you can get questions to us just about anywhere and also warning if you ask us questions they might end up here on the show anyway um but Dan Little asked me, he said, I brewed my first kettle sour and added OYL029, which is Omega Labs Whitbeer yeast, um, to ferment. But nothing after for- happens after 48 hours. Fermentation temperature is 68. I have to assume the yeast died slash failed. It's still in the fermenter, and I reordered more yeast. Besides my fear that I wasted all that lacto and may not enjoy my raspberry sour, anything I should do to save the, the day other than repitch? Thanks for any advice. So Dan also then, before I actually got a chance to respond, sent me a new picture, which was basically saying, oh, hey, look, I've got activity at 60 hours. And so we dug into it a little bit, and it turns out that Dan made no starter. He was just using a straight pack of Omega Yeast Labs uh, yeast into the into the thing because he said, well, it's a low-gravity beer. I think he said his, uh, his original gravity was only like, say, 1048 or so. So he's like, well, it was a low-gravity beer, so I didn't uh, think I needed to make a starter. Um, well... His pH was 3.8, which is a tough environment for yeast. Yeah, no kidding. So here's the important reason. This is the reason why I wanted to include this question here on the show. 
you got to keep in mind, starters are not just about gravity. They're about prepping our yeasty buddies to be in fit and firm fighting shape to be able to go into an environment that's more toxic than, say, a middle school. Um, (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) And so, yeah, here you're dealing with some sort of an extreme. Here you're dealing with a much lower pH, which is already going to make the yeast's job tough. So you need to make sure that your yeast is vital and healthy and ready to rare. So, yeah, if you're doing a 1048 beer, that's a normal beer, not a kettle sour beer. Sure, no starter. You can you can do that, assuming that your yeast is fresh. But here, because you have such a low pH, you need a starter. Yeah, I would say that it's probably a lot more due to the the pH than it is the uh, the lack of a starter. Although, well, you know, uh, well, no, you're, you're right that it's a it's a combo thing, man. If you're going to pitch a beer that's that low a pH, you got to have a starter. Yep. If it, you know, again, like you said, if it wasn't a sour beer, if the pH was uh, the normal out of the kettle pH, which what is like around the low fives mm-hmm. or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Then, then you probably would be absolutely fine just pitching the pack without a starter. But man, if you're going to uh, abuse your yeast like that, you got to give it a little help. Yeah. So to me, it's look at your starting gravity, look at your starting pH, look at the actually the amount of hops that you have in the beer too. So I would say even for something that's low gravity but ultra hoppy, which I mean, it had to be super ultra hoppy, you'd still want to consider a starter. And also, let's face it. A starter is never a bad idea, anyway. Yeah, you know what, man? I don't, I don't know about the ultra hoppy. I, uh, well, you got to worry about, pick, you got to worry about uh, hop oils coating yeast cells and whatnot. So, I mean, yeah, okay, it's less of a concern uh, than pH or gravity, but it's still there. Yeah, I, to, to me, that sounds more theoretical than an actual problem. Uh, at least it's never one that I've run across. But you know, I guess it's something to be aware of, uh, just in case. There you go. All right, so yeah, remember, give your yeast a fighting chance. All righty. The other question today comes from Mark Pellicle. Come on, buddy. Is that your real name? <laughs> Mark says, my question is, why is Maris Otter so popular in American beer? I've noticed it in many beer varieties and just don't understand what it adds to some styles. I've tasted in beers from Martzen's to Doppelbox and can't seem to find any good qualities. Obviously, I'm not a fan of this malt and might be oversensitive to it. It comes off as having an overly piney, peanutty taste that usually just ruins the rest of the beer for me. Have you all experienced this before? What are your thoughts on Maris Otter being used more? Take it. Um, well, okay, first things I'm going to say is everybody has things that they don't like. You know, I don't like whole tomatoes. Denny doesn't like fuckles. You don't like Maris Otter. That's okay. These are the, these are the ways of our lives. Um, yeah, okay, first I'm going to push back on the assumption that Maris Otter is used a lot in American brewing. I mean, I think it's used a lot in American home brewing, but I don't think it's used a lot in American commercial brewing because of the, the cost factor. Uh, yes, there. And he doesn't, he doesn't really differentiate those, yep. so he could be talking home brewing. Yep, he could be. So that's uh, thing one. I mean, if you go to most, most breweries, they're using a, a two-row malt, um, a domestic two-row, I should say. But Maris Otter, to me, the reason why I like it is I like the fact I, I, I've i never gotten piney out of it, and I've, and I've never gotten peanut, although I can kind of see where you get to peanut, because to me, the main thing that I get out of Maris Otter is the toastiness. You know, I get kind of a richer malt flavor with a little bit of toast, so kind of like halfway between pale ale malt and Munich, right? And that's the reason why I like to use it, and I actually use 
a combination 50-50 of domestic two-row and Maris Otter to simulate what was kind of a uh, a malt that was very popular at the time of the original rise of IPA back in the UK. And you can read about that in Mitch Steele's IPA book. He talks about brewers doing that today to replicate this malt. And so that's what I do just because I like that little bit of extra uh, zhuzh, that little oomph that, uh, that I feel like it gives. Um, so yeah, I've never gotten, I, so I can see where the peanut comes because I, I can see that association into the toastiness and some of the sweetness. Uh, but piney is interesting. Right? That, that one I never would have thought of. So having said that, if you're not a fan of it, then don't, don't go and use it. And I'm not going to judge you for it, but that's the reason why I use it. Denny. And, you know, let's, let's take a second here for those people who don't know what Maris Otter is. Maris Otter is a barley variety. Uh, it's a two row barley, mm-hmm. just like pretty much everything else that we use. And it's, it's just like a, a barley variety, just like, uh, Seth grows, uh, you know, full pint or, or classic, a lot of the collages or no, there's no collages. Well, anymore. not anymore. It's, it's uh, co- yeah. Collages was a variety. Uh, the one that you're seeing most often now in commercial uh, breweries is uh, Copeland, I believe, yeah. which uh, again, Seth alluded to. So anyway, Maris Otter is just a barley variety. It's nothing more than that. Uh, you know, people have this idea that maybe it's like made some special way. Nope, that's not the deal. But back to the question, Mark, I got to say, I agree with you. I seldom like an American style beer that has Maris Otter in it. It just doesn't taste right to me. It doesn't taste... Uh, crisp and focused enough, I guess is the only way I can really describe it. Um, I, I do like using something like Seth Lamanta uh, pale malt, which is, you know, I guess in a way a, a very flavorful malt, kind of like Maris Otter is. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have any problem using that. Maybe that's because I know it's American malt. I, I don't know. But in general, I don't like beers made with Maris Otter in them. Or I, I don't like American-style beers made with Maris Otter in them. No. Um, one thing probably that both Mark and I should do is a blind taste test, taking the same beer made with Maris Otter and without, and see if what he thinks he's detecting is really there or if it uh, is just kind of like confirmation bias. And same with me. Yep. And, and s- same with you, actually, too. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just know that I mean that's a thing I've developed over time that I like. But, yeah, I've never done the side-by-side. Should do that, but uh, yeah, and yeah. I was gonna say, man, maybe this is maybe this is a good way to get back into uh, our experiments. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the, and the reason why a lot of people use Maris Otter as a shorthand is because I mean, yeah, you'll you'll see it. It's coming out of the UK, and it's almost always treated like a pale ale malt. So, but you can taste differences. Like you go, the one I use a lot is Crisp, um, but Thomas Fawcett's also got a, a Maris Otter. And you, if you put the two side by side and just handfuls in, of kernels in your, in your hands and crunch on them. You can tell a taste difference. So whether or not that translates into the final beer, that would be a matter for experimentation. Uh, but the other thing is, I think at some point I'm, I want to do a show on Maris Otter because it's absolutely fascinating to me. It is, I think, arguably the oldest modern malt variety that's still being used because I believe it was developed. Uh, I believe it was developed back in the 50s or the 60s, and it's still around. Right, and there were a lot of a lot of Maris animal malts. There was like a Maris badger and yep. uh, a Maris unicorn. No, not, not well. That. No, there were yeah. All yeah. the Mar- all, all the Maris uh, Maris malts had different animal names. Yeah, and yeah, Otter's yeah. the one that survived. Per- 
Yeah, exactly. They, they did trials like Seth is doing trials with his half pint and uh, picked the, the variety, the cross that was best, and that was the Maris Otter. Yep, so there you go. Quick tip time? I think it's quick tip time, and I think the quick tip this week is from you. Yeah, uh, this is something uh, that I just kind of like really realized. It just dawned on me, and it was so obvious that I don't know why it took so long. We've mentioned that we're uh, using the Grandfather Conical Fermenters these days. Uh, I just recently acquired a second one because I loved the first one so much. I just had to have another one. Plus, I couldn't stand seeing four outputs on my glycol chiller and only using one. The, the new one I got didn't come with the neoprene jacket like the first one. And I thought, that, oh, this is a great chance for a little a little test. So what I did was uh, I put the uh, grandfather wireless controller on the uh, one without a jacket so that I could actually track the temperature. And what I found was that uh, the fermenters will hold temperature really well with or without the neoprene jacket, but there's a lot less fluctuation in the temperature if you put the jacket on. So that got me thinking about other things and other fermenters, not just these conicals. And I started thinking, well, you know what? When I use that Brew Jacket Immersion Pro, sure, it's got this cool rod that goes down into uh, your fermenter to uh, maintain the temperature. But one of the main parts of it is an insulated jacket you put around your fermenter to really hold that temp steady. And I see that there's a lot of other conical fermenters out there, and they pretty much all come with jackets. And I started thinking, man, you could you could do this. Say so even with like a carboy or a bucket, you know, you could you could get some neoprene or something and and make yourself a jacket, even just normal insulation. But I think that you know, using insulation on your fermenter is not one of those things you have to do. But if you can do it, I think that you'll enjoy the effects of it. Insulation works. Who knew? Insulation. Yeah. Who knows, man? Our value sixty on your fermenter. Yeah, so now here's a question though. You've named your fermenters. Yes. yes, I have. What are they? I've named I've named my fermenters Bert and Ernie because come on, why not? See, and I've named mine as well. Yes. Click and clack. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. There you go. But yeah, so uh, insulation in general does work. And uh, don't skip over it if your fermenters come with an option for it. Yeah, right. Or if, if you are handy enough to fabricate something yourself. There you go. So Drew has a couple something others today. Yeah, I got two something others, uh, one of which I know is going to apply to this audience very, very well because it's right in our wheelhouse. And that is Good Eats The Return. And it's on Food Network, Hulu, and a couple of other places. Uh, as I'm talking about this, the show actually uh, premieres in the future. But they put the first episode, um, American Ten, uh, experience, or American Experience Ten, Chicken Parmesan. So talking about the American Italian dish, Chicken Parmesan, it's on YouTube, so you can get it. It's right back into that classic Alton Brown mode of, you know, using a little bit of science and a little bit of fun and secret ingredients in this case, potato chips, uh, for his Chicken Parmesan, and it's he's lost none of his step. It is just as good as the cool. original stuff. So, yay! And it's on Food Network, It's huh? on Food Network, Hulu, and that very first episode is on the Food Network YouTube channel. I don't know if they're going to be streaming the other ones there as well. Yeah, you know, and, well, I just, I find that interesting, because I saw him uh, live a few years ago, and uh, 
he, he was highly entertaining, especially because he consumed a six pack of IPA before the show and during the show. But he said things about Food Network that made me think that he would never be back there again. So that's pretty interesting. Yep. Well, he's, he said he took seven years off from the show. He was originally only intending to take five, but then the live tours and the books and whatnot got in the way. That never happens. Right. And right. and but now he, now he's back. So yay! And apparently there's going to be more of the the reloaded episodes that he did on the Cooking Channel which was also owned by the right. Food Network. And then uh, they've already upped it up, I think, for another season of Good Eats the Return. So more Elton Brown. I think that the I think the other something other is going to be just as endearing to our listeners. I hope. I, I stumbled upon this uh, two, three weeks ago now. Have you ever noticed that country music seems to be having a bit of an interesting phase right now? Uh, and I mean, country music, not, you know, lifted pickup trucks and jean shorts. Country music. Uh, and so the one I stumbled across was this singer named Orville Peck. And he wears these classic nudie suits. If you know country music, you know nudie suits. If you don't know country music, you still know nudie suits the second you see them. They're the kind of the pastel you know, suits with the, the piping and you know, spangly bits and rhinestones and all that. Very classic old school country. But he wears these nudie suits and a fringed mask, so you never actually see his face. Uh, um <laughs> This, you guys have to see this to believe it. If you've ever wanted to hear what, to my mind, sounds like the lost gay cowboy album as performed by Roy Orbison, written by David Byrne, and directed by David Lynch, and remastered with a modern sound, then you need to go check out Orville Peck's new album called Pony. And it's got two big hits off of it so far, uh, Turn to Hate and Dead of Night. And I just can't tell you how much I've been enjoying this album uh, these past couple of weeks. So sit back, experience this, and if you don't like it, I'll be surprised. No kidding, man. And there we go. That's something other. So uh, I guess it's time for us to get out of here. Yes, I, I think after uh, Good Eats and, and Orville Peck, it's time to go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Episode 100 of Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, uh, especially the AHA forum. And you can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail at V-I-I-I-V-I-V-I-V-I-V-I-V-I. I I V I I I. Quick, somebody check. I and think Denny might be having a stroke. <laughs> That's six two six seven six five one ale. And of course, you can always find us at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, thanks for sticking with us for a hundred episodes, and remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental, Experimental Brewing. Brewing. 